Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, some, somebody get that poor guy out of uh, the box he's in. <coughs> Actually, that's um, Alex Gordon, one of the uh, great reporters and writers for Pittsburgh City Paper. Um, and I know that audio sounds bizarre. I have been told that while I am on vacation, which is next week, uh, City Paper is bringing in some kind of audio engineer person, and um, I am hoping, <laughs> fingers crossed, that when I return, <coughs> maybe all these issues that have plagued us for years and years and years will be resolved, but <coughs> I... I remain a skeptic just by, by virtue of the, the history. Um, I'd like to, uh, I, I wanted to talk about this uh, yesterday, but because Susan was on, I didn't want to uh, force her into a conversation that she didn't know uh, anything about, and, and because it's a local story, but it's a, it's a wonderfully, uh, it's a wonderfully gossipy kind of uh, local story <coughs> that I have not addressed yet, and we will do so today. It has to do with uh, something that happened at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on Saturday, uh, Saturday night to be exact. Uh, there were probably about 15 uh, staffers. I mean, newspapers, you got people working 24-7. There were 15 people hard at work. Uh, it was a little bit after 10 p.m. And into the newsroom, according to multiple sources, uh, storms the owner and publisher of the newspaper. Actually, his total, uh, I think it, he's called publisher and editor-in-chief, John R. Block. He storms into the newsroom, accompanied by his young child. Uh, I, I don't know the gender of the child, and I, and I'm, I, I don't know the exact age, except uh, the child is a preteen, so young child. And according to various accounts of the stunned people who were in the newsroom, uh, J.R. Block, uh, was essentially went berserk. Um, he seemed irrational. He was screaming and yelling at the staffers. Uh, there's a bulletin board in the newsroom uh, that is the that is the purview of the union for the reporters, the 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 guild, <coughs> the newspaper guild. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, it had a, the thing that was driving him crazy was a sign that had been posted on the board which uh, said, uh, shame on the blocks. And that was there uh, because of the union's uh, anger at the Post-Gazette's refusal to apparently pay uh, an increase uh, that occurred in their health care coverage. Not exactly sure about that, but th these two have been um, in negotiations for a new contract for an incredibly long time. Uh, the Post-Gazette management has been found uh, by the National Labor Relations Board and by an um, administrative law judge, I believe, of uh, being um, in the wrong, and that doesn't change anything because, of course, all block communications does is then uh, kick it up another level, um, you know, uh, appeals uh, the decision. Uh, so th the frustration for the beleaguered workers there is extraordinary. And uh, the financial hit they have been taking for years is, is incredible. 
Um, so to put up this thing, shame on the blocks, on their, it's their property in the newsroom. He went berserk. He, could, he reportedly was kept slamming it with his hand, saying that he'd spent millions of dollars on you people, uh, that they were sending him, uh, you know, into decline. Um, he kept wanting to apparently force his the child into standing in front of the poster, uh, and he would take a picture. Now, again, he was, you know, he was crazed. Uh, he was going to take a picture of the child in front of the poster, and uh, he was going to print it on the front page of the paper. Uh, as far as I know, no picture was taken. Um, people there say that staffers there actually sort of grabbed the kid to get the kid away from him. Um because, well, let me see. At the people that were there <coughs> immediately called their union reps, Michael Fuoco and Jonathan Silver, both very good reporters for the paper. They both came running over, and so we're, we're there for um, some of this. Um, newsroom managers uh were comforting the child. Uh, somehow they managed to get Block isolated, according to the account. He had come from uh, the Duquesne Club, that storied club for very, very rich and powerful people in Pittsburgh, uh, where he had had dinner, apparently, with this poor child. And probably he'd been drinking a lot. So um, he ends up there. Uh, the Guild has said since it happened, they are, they're sorry that they didn't call the police, that they're, ideally the police should have been called. They are since asking, <laughs> they are asking the uh, executives of the paper, I mean of which Block is the main one, but they're asking others uh, to literally block Block from coming into the building and that in fact he should be searched for weapons if he comes into the building because some of the newsroom employees are now saying they're frightened and they have been given the option of working from home which some of them have uh, happily uh, agreed to do. Um, Subscribers to the Post-Gazette, of course, are not going to be seeing any of this, I guess, right? I, I mean, in my quick perusals of the digital uh, issue, I, I have not seen anything, and I can't imagine that there would be. Uh, but these accounts of his going berserk was uh, were myriad from all the people that were there who, who said the reason they think nobody called the police is they were simply in a state of stunned, sort of paralyzed astonishment at seeing the the owner, the boss, the editor, the publisher, uh, frankly abusing his child like this in front of them, terrifying the child, terrifying everybody in the room. Um, this guy's got a, a twin, Alan, who is actually the chairman of what's called Block Communications, Inc., which owns the Post-Gazette and uh, the Toledo Blade. <coughs> and um, Alan Block does not dispute that this something happened Saturday night, but said that his twin brother's conduct was misinterpreted <laughs> by those present. <coughs> Um, and he sent um, this statement to uh, the incline, which first uh, reported this, saying this. The frustration over financial and other challenges in the newspaper industry led to an unfortunate exchange with employees, of which I have been made aware. 
uh, block communications regrets if anyone present may have misconstrued what occurred <laughs> as anything other than an indication of strong concern and support for the legacy and future of the Post-Gazette. We want the entire staff to know that we will continue to value all of our employees and their contributions to the PG while uh, depriving them of wages, a safe working environment. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm adding that part. Uh, <coughs> um, so uh, that's what it was. That's what happened. Uh, he said he criticized the union what during his berserk rant of trying to take money out of my family's pockets. He was threatening various managers in the newsroom. He was threatening, I'll shut down this goddamn paper. Um, if, if the sign is not removed, the sign, by the way, is not removed. Um, <clears throat> so there's that. Uh, Kristen has just sent me an, something from Two Political Junkies, great blog, on this. Uh... There has been some new news regarding the behavior of John Robinson Block this past weekend. But first, in answer to one of my questions from my previous posting, I had asked, this is, um, uh, this is the blog um, asking, uh, um, if Block and the preteen were, quote, sent on their way in an Uber, then how did they get from the Duquesne Club to the Post-Gazette, and why couldn't they just leave the same way? Well... My guess is is that he drove drunk over from the Duquesne Club to with his kid in the car, and um, and then the people that ushered him out uh, didn't want him driving with the kid. Um, uh, it goes on to say uh, Block was indeed drunk. Um, Another astute reader emailed me Jonathan Silver's letter to the members of the guild. Here are some excerpts. Around 10 p.m., Block brought his daughter, okay, his daughter to the North Shore after having dinner with her at the Duquesne Club. He apparently wanted to force her to have her picture taken in front of the shame on the Block's sign. His stated goal is to have the picture published on our front page. Block ranted about the sign and how its sentiment is now part of the family's legacy. He lamented the several hundred million dollars he said the blocks have lost on the PG over the years and criticized the guild for trying to take money out of the family's pockets. He also made comments that distinguish between wealthy people like him and the working class, namely us. Um, okay. And this is from uh, additional reporting from WESA, uh, the uh, FM station. The newspaper company, that's the blocks, uh, agreed to pay health care premium increases of up to 5% per, per year in the contract that expired in 2017. Federal labor law requires companies to maintain current pay and benefits during contract negotiations. Uh, which have been ongoing for the last 21 months. Health care costs went up 5% in 2018, which the company did not pay, and told unions that it had no plans to pay the additional 5% increase in 2019. Um, so that is how, I, I understandably, the National Labor Relations Board and um, a, an administrative law judge said, hey, blocks you are in violation of the contract uh, that uh, you signed. Um, here's what else Jonathan Silver said. After a time, Sally and Steve, obviously people that were there, were able to isolate John in the Crystal Palace. Who knows what that means? Um, Some place in the in there, calm him down and comfort his terrorized daughter. 
the most unfortunate and innocent victim in all of this. Much credit goes to Knight Web editor Marianne Mizira, who kept her head and along with Tim did what she could to intervene on behalf of the terrified child who was understandably beyond distressed about her father's bizarre and menacing behavior. Block wrestled the girl's phone away so she could not contact her mother, who was said to be out of town, and tried to manhandle her into posing for a picture in front of the sign as she was crying, protesting, and pleading. Uh, by the way, the Crystal Palace, where they stuck him, is the in-house name for the boardroom, where editorial <laughs> meetings take place. Um, and at cer certain point, the father and daughter were loaded into an Uber and sent on their way. Uh, so, I don't know how, you know, terrorizing this child is, um, in a drunken rant is, uh, according to the blocks, is a strong, uh, an indication of the s strong concern and support for the legacy and future of the Post-Gazette. I would suggest the future of the Post-Gazette has been incredibly harmed by the blocks themselves and J.R. Block uh, in particular, who has chased many uh, people who've subscribed to his paper for decades, I include myself, who was a 40, almost 40 year subscriber, uh, to cancel my subscription. Uh, so That's uh, part of what's happening here in uh, <laughs> on the journalism scene. I truly feel for the people left working there. I, I feel for them in many, many ways. I feel for his poor daughter. I do not feel for him. Now, interestingly, the, the New York Times today did a piece on how the Washington Post is handling the fact that their publisher is and owner is a big big salacious news story too <laughs> and it's very difficult when yeah the owner of your paper is a big news story and you have to cover it and the times was uh, did a did a piece about it and and mentioned this the word that uh, Bezos himself had had uh, coined saying that buying the Washington Post was a complexifier for his life. And the Times says, well, yeah, but the newspaper could say the same thing about uh, him being the owner. It has certainly complexified their uh, journalistic duties. Um, I do want to say this about Bezos, who you know I have no love for, uh, that since he did uh, buy the Post, unlike the blocks, he has figured out how to, in fact, make it more profitable. Unlike almost every newspaper I know of, he did not lay off anybody. In fact, he has in his uh, five-year tenure there as owner, he has added uh, more than 200 people to the newsroom staff, and uh, the paper has been profitable uh, for the past three years, which is a true feather in, um, in his hat. Uh, this is a time when newspapers are, are dying uh, everywhere, uh, and the Post uh, is, is going in the other direction under Bezos, which is, uh, you give the devil his, his, his due. And his uh, editorial people now are just going to, everybody insists there that he has never interfered with any editorial uh, coverage at all. He has absolutely, there's a firewall, um, and he has maintained that during this uh, fight about uh, the pecker picks with the 
pecker guy at uh, at uh, the Enquirer. As if things aren't, you know, crazy enough in, in, in journalism. There was a story I read, and I'm sorry I can't think of the name of these despicable capitalists. There, by the way, are good capitalists. My dad was one. They, they are there. They are out there. But there is, um, you know, probably a hedge fund or something that is buying up newspapers left and right and then destroying them. They buy the, and the article was fascinating because they're totally not interested in journalism and or the value of journalism. They're buying up newspapers, big ones too, including like I think the Denver Post, I think is the latest. And then they eviscerate the place. They, well, I use the right word, they eviscerate it. And hundreds uh, lose their jobs. The paper ends up pretty much spiraling downward and eventually sort of whimpers to an end. Um, they buy the papers for the real estate. This is what the article is about. For the buildings these papers uh, have, for their the printing facilities. They buy them for the real estate and then turn around. There was one instance, and I can't remember which city it was, where they buy the paper, destroy the paper, um, sell this building that the paper had been in, you know, some historic old building, to somebody who then turns around and sells it for twice as much like a day later. I don't know. There's all these are vultures. These are th this is capitalistic vultures um feeding off American journalism, print journalism and taking with them not only money but a bulwark of democracy because the people that are being thrown out onto the streets and the papers that are going down means that the people in those communities will no longer be informed about what the powerful are doing. It truly is a crisis. I mean, it's a crisis of our democracy. It's a crisis of our And then, as if that isn't bad enough, they're hiring robots. Bloomberg News. Listen to this. Roughly a third of the content published by Bloomberg News comes out of some form of AI artificial intelligence, automated technology, whatever you want to call it. The system that Bloomberg News uses is called, not surprisingly, Cyborg. And it can help a reporter by doing sort of, you know, the kinds of tasks that often take up a great deal of their time that uh, so it can do s some, you know, hunting and gathering work that could then help a real reporter write a story. But more and more, these articles, these machine-written articles are becoming, well, they're not unusual anymore. AI in a newsroom can now dissect a financial report the moment it appears and spit out an immediate news story that bypasses all human beings, uh, a news story that includes the most pertinent facts and figures. No human need in 
be involved. And unlike business reporters who find working on this kind of thing boring, it does so without complaint. Every time you hear a story about artificial intelligence, robots, whatever, coming in and taking jobs that have sustained families in our country, um, we're always getting that for the employers, they love these robots or programs because unlike humans, they don't complain. They don't get sick. Well, yes, they do, but they, yeah. They don't have to take paid vacations. They're cheaper. They're easier to deal with than humans. Humans are just troublesome. And, you know, if you don't have to deal with them, why the hell would you? So increasingly, the jobs that human beings have are, are just disappearing. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to get my news from a robot. Last week, The Guardian, which is a good newspaper, it's Australia edition, published its first machine-assisted article. Uh, which was a real news story, an account of uh, political donations to Australia's political parties. And Forbes recently announced that it is testing some kind of a program that will allow them not to hire as many human beings, reporters. Uh, little Tony writes, Lynn, the situation with the Post-Gazette blows my mind. The sad thing is it shows the shaky ground it's on. Well, it is. I mean, it would be on shaky ground if it was not in the clutches of this drunken, deranged Trump lover. I feel so bad, says Tony, for the good people that work there. God only knows what's going to happen next. I wonder if Block feels any shame. Look. Thank you, Milton, as usual. What I was talking about, these despicable people uh, that are destroying newspapers all over the country, um, called Alden Global Capital and Fortress Investment. The thing about the article, it got very complicated. They have a number of, you know, some someone comes in and buys this, sells off to that one. So it sort of becomes hard to trace what they're up to. There was, uh, in the piece, there was something about um, a paper in the eastern uh, part of Pennsylvania that was destroyed by them. Uh, they came in, yeah, okay, they... they Alden Global is behind the Denver Post, which has now, s staff has shrunk by more than 50%. Uh, they've got the Florida Times Union in Jacksonville. They've got, oh God, they just, um, in this one paper in um, Eastern Pennsylvania, and I forget exactly what. They shrunk this paper down little by little by little to the point where after they sold the building out from under them, and, and there's still like five reporters left or something, and, so, and they were working out of some kind of like an abandoned bowling alley or something, an abandoned car dealer. I don't, something like that. And this is an article that I've been sent from Bloomberg News. And for all I know, this article that's decrying what's going on with all these journalists losing their jobs because of these capitalist raiders, and it turns out this article, for all we know, could have been <laughs> written by a machine. It wasn't, actually.
I've told this story a million times, and I'll tell it one more. When I first came here as a reporter, TV reporter, I was sent to do a story at Carnegie Mellon. So this is like 1981. And I was sent to do a story on this new robot that they had created, which was going to be delivering inter-office mail. And I was very disappointed because the robot looked like a, you know, a, a table on wheels with slots and stuff. And, and it just maneuvered its way in around the building and stopping at desks and giving people mail and memos. I was thinking, a oh, robot, robot. But I remember asking the proud scientist whose work it was, well, why is this so great since I'm assuming there's a human being <laughs> whose job it's been to deliver the mail? What happens to that person? I mean, what happens to the people who all of these gizmos um, are going to replace? And he didn't even blink. I mean, he said, oh, no, 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 no. What we're doing here is we are going to create new jobs for people. The jobs the robots will be doing are the jobs that are, you know, boring and interesting, repetitive. Um, and people will be able to, like, build the robots, repair the robots. And I remember thinking this this doesn't make any sense to me because this is some smart cookie who invented a robot and he doesn't realize that there are not every human being is a rocket scientist or a robot developer that there are human beings who need work and are quite willing to be the person who takes the mail around this idea that we're all going to all we're all all of a sudden geniuses who are going to know how to repair and build and service robots bull so the thing about and 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 here's the headline by the way on this bloomberg article the hard truth at newspapers across america hedge funds are in charge and hedge funds don't give a about your right to know about the importance of journalism to a community, to a democracy. As I said, they're just cashing in or cashing out. That's all. They're vultures. In, in the very, they see a wounded thing, in this case, an institution important to a democracy. And they lick their chops and say, carrion, something for us to feast on and get richer with. God. This is why we need art. This is why you have to head over to the August Wilson Center. Coming up this weekend, Felipe Luciano. And uh, Felipe is a journalist, <laughs> a poet, a writer, an activist, a lecturer. And he is a giant among Latino figures in this country. For decades and decades and decades, he has, he has argued and organized for social justice with great passion. He speaks um, in detail about the dichotomy of his Afro-Puerto Rican heritage and his journey from a prison cell to television and to film. This is a fascinating, powerful, passionate human being, a social justice warrior. And I would think in my audience there would be plenty of people who would want to soak what he has to say in.
He is at the August Wilson Cultural Center, the 16th, which is three days from now, which would be Saturday. Check it out. Felipe Luciano. If you don't know him, here's an opportunity to broaden your horizons and to open up your head. Try it. You know, I, like many of you, my, my default position is inertia. Hard to get me up and out. But as I've said in the last few days, whenever I do, push myself up and out the door. I am 99% of the time so grateful to myself and need to remind myself from time to time that invariably that's how I feel. Okay, so that's the depressing journalism news of, um, of the day. Uh, I want to say that I have been thinking, there's, you know, I have thoughts in my head all the time, and some of them recur every once in a while, which leads me sometimes to get over my inertia and actually write down on a note that I keep having this thought so that maybe I can share it with you, and I finally got one. And um, and this has to do with the fact that I understand that in elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, colleges, there are these active shooter drills now, right? Because we live in a country where, of course, and it doesn't happen anywhere else, we live in a country where there's a possibility that, yes, some deranged person with arm to the teeth with weapons of war can come into a school and mow down children. And this has been happening for years and years and years, and we as a people have done nothing. We've done things like, and now we will hold active shooter drills every month so that when these terror, you know, these terrorizing things happen, the children will know how to act. Well, I have to tell you, what when I think of my child at that, when he was in kindergarten, in first grade, second grade, the idea of him being subjected to an active shooter drill, or whatever they call it, a lockdown drill, obviously, I, I would not want, to me, that is an the drill is an assault on him as a child. It's an assault on children. And then I'd start asking, well, what really, even though the odds are greater that a child in this country is going to die in a school shooting, greater than anywhere else in the world, what really are the odds? So is it necessary for the schools then to get ready in case they are terrorized in this way to then terrorize the children with the possibility that they'll be terrorized this way. Have we heard from psychologists about what the preparedness for having a lunatic with an AK-47 come into your class, what the preparedness drills do to children? My sense has always been that a child needs, more than anything, a sense of security. It wouldn't make me feel secure to be reminded that some crazy person can come in and I'm told to barricade myself somehow. I don't have a gun. I'm, what am I I'm a kid. What am I supposed to do?
what made me finally think about this again is I saw some woman on Twitter say that her daughter came home and on her arm, a young kid came home and she had written on her arm in whatever, pen or, I love you, Mommy and Daddy. And her, she comes home, her mother sees it, and she says, well, why did you put that on your arm? And the answer was, well, we had this drill. And I thought, if that ever would happen, I would, and I were killed, I would want you and Daddy to know that I loved you. Uh, I have no words. I have no words. Okay, now, staying local still, but with uh, also, this is one of those things I definitely uh, wrote down myself. Did you hear that? They got tickets for Emanuel Axe at the sim giving away? I won't be here, but that seems pretty good. Ellen writes, Atlantic Magazine's current issue addresses this very topic. They talk about the psychological damage this can lead to in children. Well, yeah, duh! I I don't know what I would do if I, if if my kid were young like that now I would not allow I would not I, I wouldn't allow him to be there if they did not tell me they were doing these drills on the day they do these drills I would be enraged because I would not want my child subjected to this crap okay this is nowhere near as serious but it's just a little annoyance as the roadways in Pittsburgh shrink, um, I mean, sometimes to a laughable degree, uh, roads that used to have four lanes now have two. And um, I mean, there's still space there, but it's been given over to uh, bicyclists. Um, and all right, I'll deal with it. But now there's something new happening, and I was going to ask you guys about it. And then someone on my that app called Nextdoor, where people can talk to other people in their neighborhood, ask questions, sell stuff, whatever. I have that app. Somebody on the app posted the other day about the very thing I had wanted to bring up with you and got such a response that I now have more information. <laughs> it has to do with if you're driving in Pittsburgh and there's certain intersections. I, I make my way around the East End mostly because that's where I live. And all of a sudden at intersections there are these ugly, I'd say about yay high uh, poles that are put up um, a, the, to form a barrier of sort. Uh, the one that I deal with every day um, is at the one of the, one of those typical crazed five-way intersections in in Pittsburgh, where Murray Avenue and Forward and I don't know what else that is. Because it come together right there where there's a get-go, okay? And now, I mean, there's so much traffic there. And now, if you're making a left turn so that you can get onto the parkway to come to work, which 
I do drive some days. It's hard to make the turn because now these poles are out, are encroaching onto the space that you used to have to make a turn. They're also at the where Forbes Avenue heads into Shenley Park. There's a huge sort of space there where the golf course starts. And they've put these ugly white poles way out into the street. There's, it's not a bike lane. I don't know what the hell it is. It's just taking part of the street away. A lot of, a big part of the street away. <laughs> and the woman who posted said, what the hell is that? What, what is going on? What are those? First of all, they're aesthetically awful, and they are. But they also make it really make, if you're making a turn, you just got this little space. You don't have sort of the room you used to have. And it turns out that is what they're there for. They are there to force cars to travel on a very predictable, read, narrow path. Um, they are called traffic delineators. Or one person called them uh, bollards. And they're just the beginning of something, you know, I don't understand why these things happen. And did the city explain this? They just do this in the dead of night and people are confused by them. I don't see in some of the intersections that I'm talking about how it could help anybody. Pedestrians, uh, drivers, and or bikers people on bicycles. I don't even understand what they're about. But it is an annoyance. And all of a sudden, drivers, we're becoming like cigarette smokers. We're being squeezed. <laughs> we're being squeezed. Remember how I used to feel sorry for people who were um, standing outside shivering, smoking, and increasingly they couldn't even stand outside and smoke because they started being knocked off the sidewalks into little... I have to tell you, um, people who drive are going to end up in the same boat. Now, I understand that basically that's probably good to lessen the amount of driving going on, the amount of carbon being put into the air and all of that. But we're not all able to ride bikes. And public transit also is not the greatest, it's okay, but if you're an older person or a disabled person, a c I don't know. I, I know change is hard. I'm old. I'm grumpy. But I hate those things. I hate them mostly because they're ugly. They're ugly. And they're, if you want to do something like that, then build a garden there or something. Why not? It's a big intersection. Put a garden in the middle of it. Noreen says, back in the 50s, we were subjected to air raid drills. Well, I, I was a child in the 50s. Duck and cover. We would get under our desks and put our hands over it. This is for if the Russians drop nuclear bombs on us. Now, the absurdity, of course, of, of children, you know, being terrorized about nuclear bombs being dropped. And yes, it was terrifying. We also did drills for tornadoes, though. And um, somehow that was more reassuring because tornadoes did happen. And, you know, it was nice to know what you should do. Nuclear bombs is something else when even kids had seen pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and you saw those mushroom clouds and you thought, well, I don't think putting my hands over my head is going to help. Yeah, we do. We terrorize children. 
since Pittsburgh was an important industrial area, we were targeted as an area to be bombed, so several times a year. Well, Green Bay was too. Everywhere. They did it everywhere. Green Bay, it was a small Pittsburgh. It's, it's an industrial city. Much of the paper products. I mean, if the Russians really wanted to debilitate America, you know, bomb Green Bay, Wisconsin, because the toilet paper wouldn't exist. I mean, you would not have toilet paper. Maureen says several times a year a bell would ring and we had to close all the windows, draw the blinds, and get under our desks. <laughs> Somehow, that seems so... These kids today know that children are gunned down in school. It's not Russians. It's people here in America. It's much more immediate, much more terrifying. Um, we have a caller. Go ahead, please. Hello, hi, Lynn. Hey. Um, you're talking about schools. Did you see in Florida one of their solutions is to have two combat veterans yeah. as guardians of the school yeah. with the semi-automatic guns and Glocks? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm going to school and seeing that a guy standing with a right machine gun wouldn't make me feel good at all. No. I mean, Terrifying. more guns is not the answer, no. as they always go to. We are, um, we're, we're, we're a ludicrous people, <laughs> I just want to say. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, what we do to our children is amazing, just flat out. I can't believe there's not more of an outcry by all these helicoptery concerned parents about the impact of these drills um, uh, on their children. I Do you... Unless... I, I don't know. Are we aware of kids being saved because they were sub I mean, again, the the odds of any one child, uh, you know, ending up, even in our country, in a situation where they have to know, you know, the best way to survive a massacre, um, are probably pretty low. I don't see why so many children have to be terrorized like this. We're going to terrorize you children in case... Somebody actually tries to terrorize you. We're going to get you ready to be terrorized. Ay. No, another another thing. Did you see Trump's going to sign that? Yeah. Bill. Yeah. So he's maybe come to a little bit to his senses. No. That he can't win. No. Yeah. Well. A little. No. No. Wait. <laughs> just wait. Wait for the other shoe to drop. He'll do something outrageous. It's yeah. He has to sign the bill. Because even he knows he can't he can't live through another shutdown. So yeah, uh, he lost. He lost this. He lost round one and he lost round two. But don't worry, he'll keep coming. He will keep on yep. coming. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Appreciate okay, it. thank you. Bye. 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 Oh. <laughs> What else we got? You know, I was just talking yesterday about how, speaking of Trump, about how if you elect Republicans, what they always do is, oh, we have another caller. I'm sorry. Uh, caller, go ahead, please. Hi, Lynn. Hi. In, in Pittsburgh, they used to call them retention drills. And we were all taken out of our classrooms to the lowest, um, the lowest floor of the school, lined up against the wall. We were all sitting in what they called tailor seats, you know, with our feet folded underneath us and our heads in our laps, and told to be as quiet as possible. And that was that was supposed to be for air raids or. Why were you supposed to be quiet? Bombs dropped. Pla I mean, what? So the pilots couldn't I don't know. know you were you in there? I mean, what? what? <laughs> I, that just you, think these, you think they were going to hear us? 
you yeah, know, a bunch right, of little exactly. kids. Exactly. Oh, well, they just wanted you to not get hysterical, I suppose. What? I know. I went through those too. I mean, just ludicrous. Lu- Retention. Retention. What the hell does that even mean? That doesn't make I, any sense. It, we didn't know why we were doing it, and it took a long time before somebody spilled the beans and said, "Oh, it's it's in case in case we're." You know, the Russians dropped a bomb on us. <laughs> oh, dear. Better to tell you it's tornadoes. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in Pittsburgh, you know, we've, I think we've had, what, one tornado yeah, in the city of lot. Pittsburgh? Where I came in from, my life. Tornadoes did happen with enough, uh, or the fear of them that we, yeah. They would actually send us running home if they thought it was, I mean, all right, there's a tornado coming. Let the kids out, running, and we would be running down the side. I remember once running home because there was. Oh my God! Can you just so you could get swept up in it, just I in guess. case. I don't know. I guess it was bad weather. <laughs> Who the hell knows? Boy, terrorize children. That's what we do. Hey, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Sure. Okay. Bye. Bye. Um. So Republicans uh, come in and they put in place. Uh, in all the agencies, people who do not agree with what the agency has been created for. We've been through this. You put polluters in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency. You put uh, oil and gas developers in charge of Interior Department. Um, You put people who are anti-union and want to screw workers in charge of Labor Department. You put people who don't believe in public education in charge of the uh, education department. And you'll recall there is something called the Consumer Financial Protection uh, Bureau, and that is uh, a result of Elizabeth Warren's uh, dogged efforts to create this this, uh, division of government that was there to look after the interests of us. Little people, the fine, you know, just a way to make sure the banks and other people weren't totally screwing us. Well, that is something Republicans did not want, but somehow it did get through. And now that we have such a thing, by the way, that's one of the things that Mike Mulvaney, I think, is uh, in charge of. Mike Mulvaney holds about five positions in the Trump administration, including chief of staff, right? Has he been, I don't, I don't know. But the Trump people do not agree at all with (laughs) the very idea of a consumer (coughs) financial protection bureau. And one of the things they've just done, you know those payday lenders uh, that prey on poor people, people who don't have bank accounts, people who can't, are living from paycheck to paycheck, people who are desperate enough that they have to literally go into one of these places and take out a loan to make it till their next payday. And as they take the loan out, they are slapped with these exorbitant, uh, exorbitant interest rates. I mean, the whole business a model of these payday lenders should be against the law. Uh, they exist solely to make money off of poor people and to entrap poor people. Their idea is is that you create a loan that these poor people who desperately needed the loan in the first place, you know, it's not a big loan. Let's say it's 100 bucks, whatever it is, something that they had to have and didn't, and slap this exorbitant interest rate on it and tell them they had to pay it back in two weeks, which is often the case. And then in two weeks, they can't pay it. And so you give them another loan. And then in two weeks, they can't pay it. So you give them another loan until all they're doing is paying interest and getting nowhere, nowhere. Uh, A study of the loans made by these people showed that 60, over 60% of the people who were borrowers at these, at these payday lenders were, had taken out seven or more loans in a row. 
exact proving the business model works. What kind of an evil SOB do you have to be? So during the Obama administration and with the Cons Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they, there were things put in place that would rein in a little bit uh, of what these sharks could do to poor people. Well, I just have to tell you, um, of course, not shockingly, the Trump administration has announced it is absolutely gutting uh, those rules to protect uh, the least among us from these uh, vultures. Oy. Oh my God, it's 11 o'clock. Listen, I just got to tell you one more time that you got to check out the August Wilson Center. I'm serious. And I got to tell you that tomorrow, for a little bit of the show, we're going to have um, a guy joining us. His real name is Joe, but he goes by Professor Buzzkill. And he has his own podcast. And he will be... Um, talking to us about walls, a subject that's in the news. Walls. Walls throughout history, whether walls work. He, he's a teacher, Professor Buzzkill. So we'll get a little more information on walls, the thing that our president, of course, absolutely thinks is the most important thing for the security of the United States, which, <laughs> of course, is laughable. All right, so that's it. Um, and uh, see you tomorrow, I hope. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.